We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. All right, we are in a season right now called Lent. Not Lent, not the stuff that gets stuck in your belly button or in your pockets. Lent. And so it comes from an old Latin word uh, that means 40. And so it's a 40-day season. What's your guys' favorite holiday? Just go ahead and shout it out. Favorite holiday? Christmas. Yeah, I knew that would be like top of the list, right? Christmas. Anybody have another one? Chinese New Year. Chinese New Year. It's a good one. I grew up celebrating that. I did not really. I'm sorry. (laughs) Easter. It's another great one. Easter. Did you know Lent is actually leading us up to Easter? And Easter and Christmas are the two biggest holidays of our faith, right? Christmas, we recognize and remember and celebrate the gift of Jesus, our Savior, being brought into this world. And Easter, we recognize and we celebrate and remember that that Jesus, who lived in a real body, as a real human, but also fully God, not only died and went into the tomb, but also rose victoriously from the grave. And now all of us who trust in and follow him, we follow him into new life too. We also will experience resurrection one day. So Easter's a big deal, right? But typically what we do in our culture is we celebrate days. We have holidays, right? And we focus on one day where it's like you do the thing and then it's over. And so you have like, you know, once you open up all your presents and there's wrapping paper everywhere Christmas morning, it's just, you're like, now what? Now what do I do, right? I got to go back to school soon. I got to go back to work soon. But actually, historically, these things have been celebrated through seasons. And so there's a Christmas season, right? And we kind of have a little bit more of context for that in our culture because it's been commodified, and that means like people are trying to get you to buy things for Christmas for a whole season, right? But Easter has still kind of been like a day for many of us. It's like you, you have that one day where you go and you hunt for some eggs, and you get a bunch of candy, you get all sugared up, and you see a person dressed up like a giant bunny for some reason, right? And then it's over. But there's a whole Easter season called Easter Tide, and we'll talk more about that later. But right now what we're in is the prequel to that. It's a season that is leading us up to, because we don't actually get to the joy of resurrection Easter without going through the desert of Lent. Not the dessert that's coming with Easter. The desert of Lent, okay? And, and the reason this is important is because it's preparing our hearts for what an amazing, tremendous deal it is that we get to celebrate resurrection. To celebrate resurrection is kind of meaningless if you don't understand that first there was death, right? And so Lent, it sounds like this kind of morbid thing where you remember uh, the realities of death and sin and brokenness in the world, but it's actually a very beautiful thing to remember where we came from, that we were, humans were made from the dust of the earth, and that one day we'll return to the dust of the earth. And that makes the reality of resurrection, that though you will experience death, you will find the newness of life one day through Jesus, that much more beautiful. Hebrews says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a moment. But think about that. For the joy set before him, he endured first the cross. And so we are calling this season of Lent for us a journey toward joy. 
There's a joy of resurrection set before us, and we are enduring <laughs> this season of Lent first. But every Sunday gets to be a little mini Easter celebration, a little mini resurrection, and so we get to also hear good news throughout the process. Because unlike Israel before Jesus came, who only knew of their sin and death, and were waiting that one day maybe there would be a rescuer who would come and save them, we have the knowledge that that rescuer has already come into the world, and good news is already here, and God is at work. Amen? So turn with me to Genesis 2. We're going to read from Genesis 2, verses 15 and 17, then we'll jump to chapter 3. And while you're turning there, though, just turn to a neighbor also and tell your neighbor, if you were king or queen of the world for one day, what would be one thing you would change? If you were king or queen of the world and you could do anything you wanted, but you only get one day, so you're, like, you're limited on time, what's one thing you would make sure you change about the way this world is? Go ahead and tell somebody while you're also turning heard some pretty good ones. Like ice cream. Was, I just heard ice cream. That was a good one. I don't know what the story behind that is, but it's probably a really good one. I heard, uh, I heard like no social media. It's a really good one. Uh, go ahead, Anna. No school. <laughs> Jenna. Everything is Candyland, so you can eat the walls. I think that was from the same voice that brought us ice cream all the time. Great minds of our future right here in this room. It's good. It's good. Now, here's the thing. Uh, what if I were to tell you that there was a time where the world was very much like that? No, not where you could eat the walls and it was all candy. Not quite like that. Uh, but the things that you're expressing, actually, the things that, that I overheard some of you saying, is you are expressing something that was getting to a deeper desire that you have. A desire where you would experience joy all the time, where you would not experience shame or discomfort, where there would be real connection with people not a false sense of that, where there wouldn't be anxiety or there wouldn't be uh, people who are judging one another, right? There wouldn't be war, there wouldn't be tension. And yes, there would be delicious food for us to enjoy, right? That there was a day when the world was very much like that and that God made this world beautiful and right and good. And then he puts humans there to be his representatives, to be creatures of his, like the rest of creation, but somewhat different from the rest, where we actually are living statues, like a mirror shining to what God the creator is like to the rest of the world. And he actually called us to have authority. So there was a day when you were meant to be little kings and queens over this world. And yes, God is the ultimate king. He's the ultimate authority over all of heaven and earth. But he gave, as his representatives, some of his authority to humans. And he gave them dominion and rule and reign over earth. 
and he gave us control, but he, he gave us a task with that. And that was to love and to care for, to tend to, to make sure that life continues to flourish well on this earth. Now, I believe, and we believe here as a church, that when God sets out to do something, he will accomplish it. So there is nothing that could thwart that plan. That means we believe by the end of this story that's told in the Bible, what we believe is the true story of the world that we live in, is that one day what God is doing is he's restoring us as humans to that role of being kingdom representatives to the rest of creation, to caring for his good world that he has made, and that it's not all lost. But what we know and experience today is something has kind of gone wrong in between that, right? From the time when God made all things to the time when he will remake all things good, there's something that has happened that has made that kind of off a little bit, hasn't it? Because we feel that. And when I ask that question, what would you do to change the world for a day? You immediately go, well, there's something not right. Here's how we can make it better, right? And so we're going to read about that moment that set things off course a little bit. But here's what we need to understand is it didn't stop God's plan. It didn't make him go to plan B and go, oh no, what am I going to do now? But God was completely in control the whole time and he is actually going to work through this thing that has gone wrong and make it good again. And so in Genesis 2, we hear this, of this man and woman who were made as little kingdom representatives of God to the rest of creation. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and he placed him, I forgot I was running the slides right here. Let me put it up on the screen for you. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now let's just jump to Genesis chapter 3 real quick. We're going to fast forward a little bit because what we're told then happens is uh, just some more of what God does and creates and how he then, he actually takes from the side of the man and creates a partner for him, someone to, to go through this work together. And so he has a woman named Eve. And then chapter 3 happens. Verse 1, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Let's pause right there for a second. 
We'll come back to some of that story in a moment. This is God's word. Let me just pray for us. God, we ask that in hearing this story, we would be reminded of where we come from. But God, that also, as we hear you speak to us today, you would remind us gently and sweetly and lovingly of where you are taking us. That we would hear good news through your word. God, would you use me as a vessel for that today? In Jesus' name, amen. I had a stepbrother growing up that I could not stand. Like, we, we constantly were fighting, did not get along at all. And one day I had a really great idea, a genius, brilliant idea to get at him. We had dog food at the time that resembled Cocoa Puffs. You guys know Cocoa Puffs? These wonderful little round, brown, chocolatey puffs of delight, right? We had dog food that looked exactly the same. It was the same size, same color, same shape. It did not smell the same, but everything else was really close. And so I cooked up this brilliant idea, this plan. I went out into the garage. I dug my hand into the bag of dog food, and I took out a handful of it. I went into the kitchen, into the pantry, and I grabbed about three Cocoa Puffs from the box. And then I walked over to his bedroom, and as casually, as coolly, as calmly as I could, I just leaned against his doorway, popped the Cocoa Puffs in my mouth, and said, what's up? And I just waited. The trap was set. He looked over at me, and he's like, I want some. So I held out my hand. And he runs up, and he grabs the whole handful from me of the dog food and shoves it all in his mouth. (laughs) See, what I had done is I had deceived him, right? I I took something that was delightful and enjoyable, and I took something else that (laughs) ended with a much different result, and I tricked him into thinking, this is the one you want, right? Now, to his credit, he's like, he would not let me win, and so... put it in his mouth. He starts chewing. His eyes got real big for a second. And then he goes, swallowed it all down. was like, it's good. And turned around and walked away. And I was like, next time, next time. But I still made him eat dog food. So I I feel like I still won that one, right? (laughs) But I deceived him. And that's kind of what happens in this story, isn't it? Is actually the man and the woman were in this place called delight. The original Hebrew word for garden was delight. The Hebrew word for Eden, the name of the little spot in the garden they were, is also similar to the word delight. It was like delight upon delight. God had given them everything they could ever ask for, everything they could ever desire, everything they could ever need. And it was good too. It wasn't just like, okay, here's some bread and water so that you can survive. It was good. It was enjoyable. It was desirable. It was delightful. And this serpent comes along. Now, here's the thing. I, I don't really understand like, where this serpent comes from fully. We actually know later in the story, it tells us uh, that Satan, the accuser, the one who tempts us, that he is that old serpent in the garden, right? But I don't know why he's allowed to be there. I don't know why it's in the form of a snake that can talk. Like, I don't don't know all that. But what the story is trying to get us to 
is the humans were put in control of all the other creatures. Remember, they were given dominion and authority. They were actually in power over the animals, the things that flew in the sky, the things that swam in the water, and the things that crawled on the ground. They were given the right to name them, to have authority over them. And what we hear in this story is this, this creature, not a creator like God, but a creature who actually the humans should have had authority over and said, no, 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 we're not listening to you. Instead, they give their power over to that creature. And Satan is a creature, right? We're not just talking about snakes. He is not the one who creates all things. He is created. And he's trying to come in and flip things over upside down and take control where he shouldn't have control and power. And the humans should have had the control and power to say, we aren't listening to your lies. We're listening to the one who made us and has given us everything good and delightful and desirable already. But what he does, because he's very sneaky, he's very crafty, like much like I was with the dog food and the Cocoa Puffs, is he's very wise in coming to them and making them think that even though they have everything in the world they could ever want or ask for, even though they have all this good around them, he makes them think that they're missing something. He makes them think they're lacking the very stuff that they actually have, right? What does he say to them? God knows if you eat this, your eyes will be opened, you'll know right from wrong, good from evil, and you will be like him. Here's the thing. God said, let us make man in our image. He already made humans to be like him, to be these living statues, these little mirrors that point the rest of the world to what God's like. We were already made like him. They already had the thing that the serpent was tempting them with, right? My stepbrother could have just gone over into the kitchen and grabbed some. He could have poured himself a whole bowl of Cocoa Puffs if he wanted. But somehow I tricked him into thinking he needed to grab the ones from my hand. And it led to a poor result. And in the same way, the serpent, he tricks the humans into thinking, no, 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 don't take what God has already given you, even though it's good. And it's all here at your fingertips. And you can have access to it at any point you want. Come and take this right here for yourself. And it's going to be better. And what happens is the very fabric of what God created for humans to be starts to break down. And so we'll draw this up here for us for a second. This is a person. Why are you laughing at my drawings? I worked really hard on this. I went to art school. That's a person. And people were created to relate to God, right? That's an arrow. That's a really, the person's better than the arrow. Wow. People were created to be these reflections of what God is like, right? And to show the rest of the world what God's like. And God would actually come, enter into the garden, and walk with them, and talk with them. And so even the, the temptation of you can know what's good or not good, what's, what's good or evil for yourself, they already had access to the one who created all things and would come and teach them about how to live. They already had this knowledge of what's good or not good by listening to God first. So they had this relationship with God, right? But they also were to relate with one another. 
God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And he creates out of the side of the, the man a woman. And they're connected as one, but two distinct people, right? And now they can show the world what God's like. And they have this beautiful relationship with each other. Not only that, but they were put on the earth to care for it, to help make sure that the garden thrives, to cultivate it, to subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply and spread it out over the rest of the world. They had a relationship. They were actually called to work the land before sin ever entered the story. We think of work as a bad thing, and sometimes it is for many of us, but work was a good thing in this place. And they also had a way to relate with themselves. God created them to know themselves and to know him and to know who they are that he made them to be. And when that serpent comes in and he starts deceiving them, what happens is he starts tricking them to give up all of what they have right here. What this picture is, is a picture of what it looks like to be fully human. The way you relate with God, the way you relate with others, the way you know yourself, and the way you relate with the environment and the world that we're placed in. That's what it means to be a whole human. And when the serpent deceives them into going and taking what they already actually had for themselves, what happens is he starts breaking this down. And so when God shows up, they run and they hide from him. And they say, we were afraid of you. They had no reason to be afraid of God before this. But this relationship with God now has been broken. It's been scarred. Not only that, before God even shows up, they go and hide from each other and they cover themselves up. It says they recognize that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves. They're the only two humans there. Like, they've been naked and unashamed. They've known each other fully. They came from one another, right? God formed the woman out of the man. They had total knowledge of each other, and they were one with each other. And yet, once they had this deception, this lie crept in, that maybe God's holding out on you, and you could find something better on your own, this relationship between each other got broken. Then they feel fear and shame and guilt. So even the way that they internalize and know themselves the way that they understand who they are is now filled with shame, guilt, and fear. And then God shows up later and he's like, hey, what happened, right? And they start blaming each other because their relationship's broken. But then when God says, this is the result of what you've done, one of those things that happens is he says, you will now work the land through thorns and thistles. It's gonna be hard. This work you were called to before that was beautiful and good it's now going to be hard and it's going to be painful. You're going to wish you didn't have to do it. You will eat from the ground through thorns and thistles. The entirety of what it means to be a human, a whole person, has now been damaged. It's it's been destroyed. And if we stop right there, we go, oh man, Real, real feel-good sermon today. Like, Lent is going to be terrible, right? But God shows up. God comes down again. He says, where are you? He looks for them. He moves toward them when they run and hide from him. And in all that, he gives a promise. 
that one day there's going to be another human who comes who does battle with that serpent. And the serpent is going to bruise his heel. The venomous bite is going to sink its teeth into this human, which sounds like death, doesn't it? But in doing so, actually, what that human's going to do is he's going to crush the head of that serpent. And that serpent who deceived you will be no more. We know that story, right? We know who this person is. Now, as we go through Lent, what we're doing is we're actually mimicking a thing that Jesus did. And I want us to see that right now. And so if you would turn with me to Matthew 4. We're going to hear a story about Jesus right after he gets baptized. And that, remember, we've talked about this a lot with Missio. That word baptize, it's not a word we have in our English language. It actually comes from a Greek word. And if it were translated to English, it would simply mean immersed. When Jesus comes, he comes as a human and he fully immerses himself in humanity. The God who created all things, who spoke things into existence, and who made humans to be his representatives, he then becomes human. He fully immerses himself into that. And so symbolically, he goes and he gets baptized in the water. And right after that, the spirit of God leads him into the wilderness. And this happens. Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That old snake in the garden. He's there again, tempting, trying to deceive, trying to lure away. You think you have everything you need, but let me show you there's something more. God's holding out on you, right? Verse 2. After Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, that's why Lent is a 40-day season, he was hungry. Of course he was. That's just like such a simple, I always laugh at that because like, well, of course, you didn't eat for 40 days. You're hungry. But what happens when you're hungry? I get hangry, right? Like I start getting very short with my family. I snap at people. I'm like, give me a Snickers bar right now. I need something, right? And so you, you don't have as much uh, control sometimes, right? You, you feel this sense of need and sometimes it starts to get even panicky a little bit on the inside. So Jesus is hungry, which means in his physical state, he might be weakened. And Satan sees his opportunity. Verse three. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Verse four. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, hold on right there for a second. What is he tempting him with? If you really are the son of God, what do you think, Eileen? Say that again. Yeah, he's tempting you with food, right? He's hungry. 40 days not eating, he's hungry. And he goes, turn these stones into bread. You can eat. You can meet this physical need you have, right? And he's also tempting him with his identity. If you really are the son of God, Now, isn't that the same thing he does with the first two humans? If you really want to be like God, if you really want to be in his image, if you really want to be his representatives, here's some food. It's it's mimicking that story, right? Jesus has entered into not only the physical world of humanity, but he's entered into the very real spiritual battle 
that we faced all the way back at the very beginning of the world. And he doesn't give in. He shows his authority and power over that snake. He says, I hear you, but let me tell you what my father says. The way the first two humans said, I hear you, snake, but let me tell you what our creator says. Jesus does what the first two humans failed to do. Verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you are the son of God, again, tempting his identity, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give you his angels, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Wasn't he testing the first two humans in the garden? If you really believe this, right? God, God's holding out on you. He doesn't really want what's best for you. You're not going to die. He knows that then you'll be like him and you won't need him. He's testing them, right? And Jesus says straight up to him, nope. You know what scripture also says? You know what, you know what the word also says? You know what my father has also said? Don't test this God. Verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. What is really silly about that, you guys? Go ahead, Liam. Jesus is the king over all creation, over heaven and earth. All these things already belong to him. Wasn't he tempting the first two humans with what they already had? What had already been given to them by their creator? Here he is right here. Hey, I'll, if you just worship me, I'll give you all this stuff. That's already Jesus's, right? Here's, here's some dog food, even though there's some Cocoa Puffs in the pantry right now. Like you already have access to it, but eat this instead. Verse 10, and then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and began to serve or minister to Jesus. You know what I love about all this is right before all this happens, when Jesus is being baptized, there's this moment when you hear the voice of God, his Father, and the Spirit comes over Jesus. And you have now the God who created all things, that the spirit who hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation, the word of God spoken out and says, let there be light and creates all things, now is showing up here again in this moment. And the father speaks identity over his son. This is my son who I love and I'm very pleased with him. And it's in those words and in the power of the spirit that Jesus is able to go into the wilderness, not eat for 40 days, hear these lies and temptations from the devil and turn away from that. Now listen, we, if we follow Jesus, we don't have to be like Adam. We don't have to be like Eve, the first two humans. We actually now can regain that authority over the snake. We can regain our position of understanding and knowing who we are in God. That through Jesus, we too can say, we are his beloved children who he is very pleased with. And when things come and start to tempt us, 
We can say no to those because we know we have something better. All of this, you guys, is about desire and delight. And so we'll just make it really simple so that we can remember this whole thing with two words, okay? Desire and delight. Remember, God put the first two humans in the Garden of Eden, delight upon delight. Everything was good and everything was available. Delight. The serpent shows up and he starts trying to plant in their head a desire for something else. Now we can all relate to this. Adults especially, like anytime we're just scrolling endlessly, I love that one of those answers was what I would change in this world is get rid of social media because what are you doing? You're just endlessly searching for something and you don't even know what it is half the time, do you? And when you see other people's posts and you go, oh man, if only I had that. If only my life was like that. If only I could go to those places, right? And there's this lie in there that's saying, don't you desire something more? Aren't you dissatisfied with what you've been given? And it makes you start to doubt the delight that God already has available to you. If you would just go over to your own pantry, you can get it freely. I'm not just talking about food anymore. There's, there's something that God has already given you to delight in, but the lie of the enemy is, no, 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 don't you desire something else? And whenever we go chase after that desire, we start devouring those things, consuming them, thinking this is what's going to satisfy us. And what happens is it ends up devouring us. This is what God says to one of Adam and Eve's children. The first two humans had kids, and he says to one of them, listen, the enemy He's prowling around like a lion. His desire is for you. He wants to devour you. He's trying to trick us to give up the very thing that God has already given us so that we would desire something else. And in the end, it ends up destroying us. But what God is calling us back into, what Jesus does in the wilderness, is he goes and he is willing to suffer. Remember we talked about Hebrews earlier? We said in Hebrews 12, verse 2, that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He was willing to go through suffering. It's not a delightful thing to be hung on a cross, to be beaten, to be whipped, to be spat upon, and to be murdered. But he was willing to go through that because there was a joy before him. There was some delight that was coming. What do you think that thing was that Jesus was delighting in? What do you think? What was the joy set before him? On the other side of the cross, when he rises again to new life, what could it be? Was it returning to be on his throne in heaven? Listen, he didn't have to give that up in the first place. It was already his. He willingly laid that down. Was it to have life again after physical death? No, no, no. He willingly laid his life down. Why did he do all that? He did it so that he could restore and reunite us with the purpose he gave us to be his representatives in his kingdom, to be his little living statues, his, his mirrors that show the rest of the world what he's like. He did it because the joy set before him was not only would he come to resurrection, but all of us who would follow and trust in him would also enter into the newness of life eternally with him. God delights in you. We're tempted with desires of things outside of the delight of God. 
Listen, yes, Jesus did it for all of the world being restored, but you and I are included in that. God desires and delights in relationship with you. So much so that he went through the suffering loss of Jesus' death so that you and I could be brought into the newness of life. And if we have a God who desires and delights in us like that, could we remind ourselves that when we're tempted with other desires in life? Could we remind ourselves we already have the full delight of a God who has given us everything we need right here. No thank you, Satan. I don't need that. And as we learn to do that more, because we are reminded of our identity that we are loved by God and we are empowered by the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave, that we could actually become fully human again. Our relationship with God restored. Our relationship with others, whole and good. Our relationship with ourself, the fear, the anxiety, the shame, the guilt, that God starts to work on that. And that even one day fully, our relationship with the created world, that we would take our place again as people who have dominion and authority over this earth. That's the good news. That's the story of the Bible that we believe. That's the story of the world we live in. And that's the story of Lent in this season. And so that's why we go through that. It's not a uh, legalistic or even like a, a weird, like spiritual thing, right? It's just an invitation to remember the God who fully identified himself with us so that we could once again be fully identified with him. And there's no rules or practices we're going to give you on how to do that this season. We're just simply inviting you to ask the Spirit, how would you want me to engage in that? So that the joy of resurrection life at Easter becomes that much more delightful. Amen? John, Amy, Tammy, would you guys come up? Uh, you're going to lead us in a couple more songs. And as you do that, let me just invite you guys right now. There, there's something maybe that you're desiring in life, right? You think this is the thing that's going to make life sweeter. It's going to make life better. And I just want to invite you to turn away from that lie that actually the thing that you desire, desires aren't a bad thing, but dig deeper in that and ask, what is that really pointing me to? Is it a desire to be known? Is it a desire to be safe? A desire to be free from pain? To have comfort? Joy, because all of those desires are good desires, but you will only find them fully met and delightful when you find them in Jesus. And in James 3, he says that what happens is when desire sets in, and he's talking about this twisted desire that Satan started in the garden, when that sets in, it gives birth to sin. And when that is fully grown, that becomes death. What he's saying is when those desires get twisted to go and chase after what you actually already have in Jesus and try to find it somewhere else, and you start acting on that, that gives birth to sin, what that will eventually lead us to is destruction. But real life is found in saying, I already have those desires met fully by delighting in Jesus. And so would you pray with me that God would help us to see that more clearly? Because the reality is all of us get blinded to that every single day.